0: This is the Rockonomics Podcast, Lucky Number 7. I am Dill, your host, and we're here to explore the price tags and paychecks of the business that is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Our guest today is music journalist and author Mark Kemp. Mark has written for Cream, Spin, The Village Voice. He was the senior music editor for Rolling Stone, the executive editor of the influential alternative music magazine Option, and he was vice president music editorial at MTV, where he was part of the team that launched Total Request Live or TRL as most people remember it as. Mark is also the author of the book Dixie Lullaby, a story of music, race, and new beginnings in a new south, which was published in 2004 and is more relevant today than ever. So given all that good background, we had a lot to talk about, and talk we did. In fact, we didn't shut up, so much so that we split the interview into two parts. So what you're about to hear is part one of my conversation with Mark Kemp. And I struggled, but this morning I, uh, I stumbled upon, you know, just general news of the week, and that was uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, right, 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 yeah. And I was like, "Oh, let's just, well, you know, let's talk about that, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into it." But it, it dawned on me: are you are you a voting member?
1: I used to be. Okay. I was when I was at Rolling Stone. Okay. So yeah. And did you see the? Uh, facebook posts that i did on it where i talk about because people people really kind of don't know how it works they go, oh it's all about the money or it's all about you know uh mainstream appeal and right. and it's really and we can talk about it. it's really all about jan Winter, <laughs> you know because jan Winter and uh amit erdogan i think started it so it's a Rolling Stone thing. So okay. anything having to do with the Rock and Roll Fa- Hall of Fame is going to come through the lens of that Rolling Stone mindset, which is problematic for you know people who sure. grew up in, in the punk era or hip hop. You know, yeah, um, they try, but you know, it's still very, it's very Catholic.
0: That, <laughs> you know? uh, funny way of putting it. It's funny because I looked at it, it might even still be up, but they they had the criteria uh, on the website that it, I just happened to. Um, on and it, it, i mean see I, I get what you're saying but it seemed legit about you know the influence it had on artists that come behind them that's you know, the originality of their stuff the depth of their stuff
1: it's ideally what it's about yeah. but then it's not really necessarily reflected all the time in in the in the pics. um you know ideally and that's ideally what we were at rolling stone what you know what we were doing and 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 rolling Stone's great i mean it but there are blind spots with Rolling Stone. sure. Like MC5 should be in there. That's like, funny. When I saw them listed, I thought they were in there. I
0: mean, yeah. everybody talks about MC5 as being the single most influential band of that on, era.
1: On Well, on political and punk rock, you know, yeah, yeah. Or, or death even, but death, you know, actually didn't put a record out until many years later, but right. those bands in terms of punk rock, punk, and that's one of the blind spots. I mean, not among a lot of the, critics and not and i know all the people who vote and they're aware it's just there is once i mean when i was at rolling stone you know jan winner you know he would he would say certain things which meant i want this person to either get a good review or i want this person to get in the rock and roll hall of fame so right. you, everybody kind of walks with that mindset sure. so i mean rock music you in, in a to a great degree has been um, documented in, uh, by Rolling Stone, so that already has skewed what we right. th- think of as rock rock music.
0: True. Music. And you think back too, they really have had a monopoly on it for a yeah. long time. Yeah. I mean, sure, you have Spin and you have the... Uh, you and know.
1: you had Cream in the early days, yeah. which was, thank goodness, was the kind of the yin to their yang. and They wrote about people like, you know, everybody from punk rock to funkadelic, but you know, Rolling Stones still kind of ruled the roost
0: yeah true so. true um so going back <clears throat> um you started as i mean you wanted to be a musician or you, i know you play guitar now but what was your you know what kind of started the whole love of rock and roll for you when you were a kid
1: oh um well you know the the first fascination i had with music was the jackson five because michael jackson was around my age right. and i was i guess around 11 when they came out and um i heard i want you back and i just thought man that's just the best sound in the world i want to <laughs> be this little kid you know and i'd see him on tv and he would dance and i couldn't dance like that and <laughs> i just thought he was the bee's knees so and that was my first concert uh, in greensboro i went to see the jackson five with my friend robert and um i was just you know i was in love with the jackson five and but it wasn't long before uh, my sister who was older was listening to stuff like t-rex and the Almond brothers and yep. stuff like that and um i remember hearing the Almond brothers "Ida wild south and uh looking at the album cover and going dang you know also i like the rolling stones at the time but right. i remember looking at that album and going dang these guys they they look like my sister's boyfriends you know right they got you know they dress like southern guys you know hanging yeah. out in the, in the woods you know as opposed to what Jagger was wearing. yeah he, he was wearing sequin jumpsuits, jumpsuits and stuff yeah. like that which was larger than life to me and I, and I loved it but the almonds looked like people that i knew sure sure and <clears throat> they had a a sound uh just a mournful sound that i could really relate to at that time and um so i I fell in love with the Allman Brothers and that was one of the next concerts I saw. So there's a long uh, there's a there's a big gulf between the Jackson sure. Five and the Allman Brothers. Like very, very much kid music to the very, very much adult, you know, right. deep, dark, swampy music. So yeah. um yeah. Those were the, the Jackson Five the Rolling Stones and the Allman Brothers were – just and then I was reading uh, magazines. I was reading the Teeny Pop magazines, like you know Tiger Beat or whatever right, that, yeah. that Michael Jackson was in. And I remember I had an older cousin who said, "You need to be reading Rolling Stone." And I went, "What's Rolling Stone?" And he said, "Oh, this is what all the cool people read, you know." And back, so back when it was a paper, right? When yeah, was it was old a large, large yeah, format. No, actually, it was even folded over. It looked more like an alternative weekly at okay. that time. And um, so. You know, I started reading. Stone. I didn't know any of these bands except for the ones that my sister had eight tracks of, and um, so I would see Leon Russell and uh, the Stones and the you know members of the Beatles on the cover, and so I started listening to you know that kind of stuff. And then at some point, I discovered Cream Magazine, which was kind of the the scrappy kid yeah. brother, and um, and I started reading about the harder edge bands that they were writing about the more proto punk sort of stuff. And, and I love that. And I remember first hearing, um, uh, mention of P funk, which is Parliament Funkadelic. And I thought, what is this a funk punk? And I didn't really know (laughs) what it was, but, um, uh, some friends of mine who listened to Funkadelic had turned me on to maggot brain and I went, Oh, this is great. This is like, you know, Frank Zappa or, you know, just some weird psychedelic band only they're funk you know so um yeah i just um i would read hunter s thompson's stuff in rolling stone because he was writing about the the nixon uh i mean the watergate thing and i just thought wow this guy is crazy you know And, and he's like you know follow chasing the president you know and sure it was just fascinating to me i also delivered papers so i kind of put all that together and i thought i either want to be a rock star or i want to write about rock stars interesting and, yeah. when
0: did you first take note of bylines like seeing like lester bangs or like you said hunter s thompson
1: it's funny i read other their names mentioned in other stories and i didn't really think about bylines like most people don't really sure especially um, at that age yeah um and this was a little later it was like whenever i got to be you know in late middle school high school okay um and and my sister also she would tell me about writers that like timothy leary and stuff like that but Mm -hmm. um i would see mentions of lester bangs or hunter s thompson and then i then i would go back and look at the bylines and go oh this is that crazy story about watergate or whatever okay and uh and by high school of course i was i was reading for bylines more and by college i was totally reading
0: for sure, bylines. sure so at what point did you um did uh you give up on music to go into journalism
1: well um i mean i kind of did both um in high school a little bit i i wrote bad reviews and stuff for my little high school stapled together paper and um and college i wrote a little bit for the college paper not a lot but mm-hmm. um so, and then I was also playing I would play my acoustic guitar In and, and, uh, local Clubs uh-huh. uh, I went to ECU in Greenville, North Carolina And um, There was a place called the Treehouse I played like folk songs John Prine songs there yeah. or And then I joined a punk band Because punk had kind of come around And um, nobody was doing it In Greenville uh, so There was one band that played kind of new wavy Elvis Costello type stuff and so but nobody doing like real punk like Dead Kennedys or you know hardcore stuff like that so um, I joined this band these guys and we played a mix of more hard edged punk And um, right around that time, it was like right around the time that REM kind of was bubbling up out of Athens, Georgia, and they came to town and was seeing these bands in the DBs from North Carolina. And I was seeing these bands, I was thinking, God, you can do this yourself, you know, DIY. And I told the guys, I said, we should move to New York or Atlanta and, you know, and really do this thing. And they were like, oh, man, I'm just going to hang out here. And I thought, (laughs) if they're just going to hang out in Greenville, North Carolina, nothing's going to happen. (laughs) and um i put out resumes and i got uh, a call from a daily newspaper in burlington north carolina and decided that i'd be a reporter and i mean i'd already studied english and some journalism and stuff and um uh and the band guy's like i can't believe you're gonna like leave our band to become a stupid newspaper reporter (laughs) and i was like I'm glad I did because yeah. <laughs> i also i you know you see what bands go through on the road and yeah with record deals and getting screwed over, and I didn't know anything about anything um and uh we would have just it would have just been disaster. So, I
0: mean, that, that's kind of what this podcast is about. I yeah, mean, I, yeah, I don't know a lot about the industry. I kind of I kind of, you know, large brush knowledge of it. But in getting in people and talking about what they know, it's always interesting to, you know, I don't want to, I'm not to, not to expose anything. I think most people know what what it's like, but it's right. just got such a glamorous sheen to it. You know, there's a very working class notion that people forget, you know, So right. it's always interesting. Um, I Just want to touch on one quick thing about your your newspaper job that you were doing the police police report yeah right? yeah, yeah uh-huh. did you see it? was there any heavy shit that went down oh yeah, the I mean,
1: there were murders uh, some oh god it 's been so long um, I think there was this woman who killed her husband or something or double or, or some murder, murder suicide. suicide. I remember yeah. I went oh, up on the scene and it was I mean, I saw a lot of stuff that I just in, my, in domestic abuse i couldn 't believe I mean I was sheltered. But I couldn't believe how many people were out there beating each other, and really, you know, every single day, the most arrests were domestic abuse and DUI. Yeah, and um, so yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty depressing.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's just the a the, you know, your local police, you got to pat them on the back because I mean, can you imagine day in day out that your job breaking up these you know domestic yeah yeah I mean and, it's
1: yeah uh, yeah
0: but um, so from there you went you went to New York on a you were going to take a course there or? yeah,
1: well, I uh, had read about I was trying to get in Rolling Stone and these other magazines spin and um, you know i 'd write letters from Burlington, North Carolina. I had a little pop music column there too that I did on the side and um, and this was way you know before the digital age, you know you sure. just had to write yeah. a letter and wait <laughs> and um, I remember i wrote I had written a a review of a bruce springsteen concert 1984 in greensboro and i i kind of i kind of made fun of him for just being from new jersey because you know as a su- you know from the southern perspective sure. and um it was just all a joke and i sent it to this uh, editor in new york and um i got this letter back saying you'll you'll never work in this industry i mean you you, you know bruce springsteen is brilliant and here you're making fun of him and i'm like God, he must definitely have not read Cream growing up, and and I just thought, oh God, maybe I'm just not right for this. It was devastating, and I, and uh, and but I was still kind of determined. So there was this um, publishing. There was this New York University has this summer internship, uh, not internship, summer program in magazine and book publishing, and I applied for it and I got. Accepted and uh, told my editor, I said, "I'm going to go up there. Just can I take a leave of absence and then I'll come back?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, you can do that. That's good. We we very much support you know furthering your education and stuff like that." <laughs> so I went up there, and I knew the moment I got there, I'm not going to go yeah. back home. And I didn't. <laughs> I called and I said, "I'm not. You you might want to hire somebody to take my place because I'm not coming back." It's funny.
0: Now I I lived in New York about twenty years yeah. and and I see so many stories of artists coming to New York and my and this being rockonomics I I immediately go to like how would you survive there I mean it's an expensive oh, town Oh God I don't even you know went, you went there without a job
1: <clears throat> Yeah Yeah you know? I, I don't even I, it's I think about it now and I think and it's just I guess you know young kids are like you know <laughs> resilient yeah i mean you just somehow get by so i had some friends up there and after i got out of the dorms i was staying in the dorms at nyu uh, i stayed with my friend holly and um, crashed on her floor and and i was i looked for a place and i found a relatively cheap place in brooklyn back then brooklyn was not hip at all it was not there and williamsburg was you know just hasidic juice it wasn't like you know hipsters um this I, mid to late eight, mid mid 80s this right? was yeah mid mid to late 80s and so i found a place on flatbush near um 7th avenue that sort of park slope area and it was near train and it was relatively inexpensive and um i don't you know and my friends would like they would have uh dinner at like uh happy hours you know you go yeah, to happy right, hours and right, get free, free food so that's how we <laughs> that's how i ate um and <laughs> get a bagel and coffee in the morning and somehow yeah. So, and uh, I got a job working as an assistant editor at the science magazine Discover. Yeah, but it, it didn't really pay that well. I'm thinking, God, I don't know how I did this, but you just do it, you know.
0: Now, uh, at Discover, did, did you write a couple features there while you were there? I did, yeah. Like on what? What did they end the, up um,
1: there There's this company called Tofuti. Uh, remember Tofuti? I don't know if they may it's, still be around. It sounds vaguely familiar. <clears throat> well. Um, they were making this new thing which was you know like um non-dairy ice cream treats you know which now of course we can get everywhere but it was only tofuti at that time and there was a science behind it you know and i went out to Rawway, new jersey and talked to the owner and about you know and the people who made the tofu. and that was it was a, one of the features that i did i did another feature on the um um neurobiology of squid a squid has a uh a, a, a thing in its brain that is a lot bigger than its body so um it's more in line with a it's called an axon i can get really detailed about Very this true. but i want but and 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 they use the squid axon to do a lot of testing for human neurobiology okay and um so i did this story and that wasn't what was great about it what was great about it is i got to go to Woods Hole, um, Massachusetts, to the to this place where they do all this research and it was wonderful and I was able to kind of paint a picture of it. I didn't get the job at Discover because of my science knowledge, yeah, I, I wasn't very good at that. I got it because apparently the editor liked my writing So um, and I had a way of kind of painting a picture and pulling you in. And I was able to do that a little bit, but not much, I was mainly just a fact checker there.
0: So was that your first occasion where, and I, I want to get into this further when you, when we get to uh, option Rolling Stone, but was that your first occasion where they're, they send you somewhere? You have a per diem. Yeah, you yeah. Know, you're, you're. Oh, it's, going
1: deep. I did a. We did this special issue on well, what, what it would be like in the year two thousand one. Oh <laughs> I know, I know. Um, because of the film 2001 of Space Odyssey, how will technology have evolved by that time this is the 80s and um so they sent me out to los angeles to talk to film directors and producers oh, about cool. film special effects and i was i couldn't believe it they put me up in the swanky hotel i took pictures of myself in the swanky hotel and sent me i went out to see like i went out to lucasfilm and and I just thought I was, you know, this is the life. That's I want to really do cool. this forever. But I don't know if I want it to be science, but I want to do this celebrity sort of film industry, music, stuff like that.
0: So while you're there, are you, are you um, submitting to cream or option or spin? Or- yes. Okay. I got my
1: first major magazine story in Cream magazine, which was a big thrill. And they were about to go out of business at right. that time. Um, but it was on Michelle Shocked and um it was um it was a big thrill because that's what lester bangs had written for and i was like oh my god i got i got in cream finally yeah. and um and so then and i was also freelancing for option i had discovered an option option was this kind of underground indie magazine that wrote about you know punk rock hip-hop um even like you know free jazz um contemporary classical uh, world music all this mm-hmm. any kind of music that wasn't rolling stone right and i thought well this is cooler than rolling stone because this is the magazine that represents kind of now and kind of the more experimental music and um, so I started writing for them and I was writing – I wrote a lot about hip-hop because hip-hop was in kind of its golden age period and I got to interview people like Eric B of Eric B and Rakim and the members of Stets of Sonic. I went in the studio with them when they were doing their album in full gear.
0: That's cool. What was that like?
1: Oh, it was amazing. Was that oh, yeah. your
0: first experience in – kind of seeing the process
1: yeah a friend of mine engineered that record so he said you know if you want to come in you can see and also i was following the whole sampling debate because sampling um at that time was used kind of wide open which is why some of those album early albums are so incredibly creative because they could just take a pile of records in the studio and just sample whatever the hell they wanted and it came out as this pastiche like public Enemy's bomb squad did mm-hmm. and um So I was, you know, I was finding out, learning a whole lot about sampling and how that worked and how putting together tracks worked. And and it was just fascinating to me. That was to me, punk rock and hip hop, early hip hop were just like just fascinating to me because I had always listened to music, the kind of psychedelic music Mm -hmm. that was experimental. And this just kind of, like, was the, the experimental music of the times. And so that was just the most exciting thing in the world. And Option let me write about that. Rolling Stone would never have written about that kind of right. stuff at that time. They, did, I don't, you know, they were still writing about, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival or something, you know. So I was very, I, you know, I had gone up there to write for Rolling Stone, but I ended up writing for a magazine that was a hell of a lot cooler than Rolling Stone. And um, they gave me more and more... Um, assignments and i would do cover stories i did a cover story on on michael stipe a cover story on morrissey cover story on the pixies and i was just doing cover story after cover story and when their original editor decided to step down the publisher called and said well, i'd like to talk to you about becoming the editor and it was just the most exciting moment in my life <laughs> i was real cool on the phone i said yeah yeah i gotta do that yeah i come out there and i put the phone down i went oh my god <laughs> It's happening. <laughs> now one thing I'm
0: unclear on. Did you have to did you have to, was that based in LA? Yeah. Did you I had have to, to move there? Yeah, I had okay. to go down to LA.
1: Yeah, so they flew me out there and um on their limited budget. Um we talked and and I, the the one thing is, you know, Scott Becker, he was the publisher and we got on really well and he took me around to LA and but the one thing is I didn't want to Live in LA. I just, I, you know, to me, LA was, you know, models and Hollywood and yeah, just everything artifice. I didn't, didn't like. And I loved New York um, so much. I'd really grown to love New York and the whole hip hop and punk scenes and, and Sonic Youth and that sort of uh, underground rock scenes. And so I didn't want to leave that. Um, so, but I wanted this job. So so I did and he offered me the job and I moved out there and um I hated it at first I just I really hated. it I wanted to be back in New York I mean it's, such,
0: it's so funny it's so polar opposite because New York everything is right there condensed yeah, yeah, yeah arm's reach in LA it's like you know it's just a commuting nightmare oh
1: it's awful I you know and I had you know I'd sold my car I didn't need a car in New York you could just walk everywhere you could take the train and I had to get a car and I hated that um, and I would complain about it every day you know well while, while you know editing I was learning how to edit and I was learning how to not rewrite people's stories so they t- were Mark Kemp's stories that was my big problem at first um, but I was complaining about it and I remember there was this woman Bix who, who I still know uh, she was very cool and very gothy looking, you know, and she was, she just answered the phones there and, you know, just kind of was an assistant and I was the editor and she turned to me and she said, if you, if, if you like New York so goddamn much, why don't you just move back? And I was like, whoa. And it really was a turning point. I, I started exploring LA and LA is so It's a wonderful place. It's got this deep, rich Latino culture. It's got these, this deep, rich, like Long Beach culture, like Mm -hmm. the Minutemen and, and bands like that came out of Long Beach and... And I knew that the LA punk rock, Black Flag, and all that stuff. Yeah. And there was an emerging hip hop scene out there, you know, the whole West Coast sure. scene. And w- one in South Central that hardly anybody was paying attention to because gangster rap was kind of t- the thing back then. But there was a whole freestyle fellowship, far side sort of experimental hip hop scene down in South Central that, you know, just you didn't associate South Central with. With experimental hip hop at that time, you right. associated it with Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre, and so I started just exploring that and and really kind of coming to terms with LA, and I ended up really loving it. Did you find yourself at options
0: seeking out the stories versus them coming to you?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we were constantly. I mean, we we got God, we got so much music every day there. Um, and we wrote about so many genres that it was, you know, we listened to everything that came in at that time. Me and Scott would just go through box after box of CDs and we wouldn't listen to them all the way through. If they sucked, we would right. just kind of put them in one pile. If there were possible, uh, reviews, we'd put in another pile. And then there were a few that we really loved and we would write about them. And I also just would go out into LA and kind of like I had, I, at, at option, I had kind of discovered the whole chill out room at raves uh they were playing different kinds of electronic music there just the more downbeat stuff Mm -hmm. and i heard that they were doing it in clubs in these little kind of upstairs coffee house clubs and i did a whole piece on on that kind of stuff so yeah we were seeking it out we were looking for it we weren't letting it we and we also we were kind of really well known about publicists couldn't sell us stuff we we, you know we did our own thing
0: So, I mean, you mentioned uh, a number of articles and personalities that you, um, you know, covered and wrote about. What do, what do you observe generally about how these people live? And I guess this is a rock rockonomics question. Like, again, back to the perception, like, they're not all in mansions with Rolls-Royce parked in the driveway. It's like, no, what, no, what, no, no, no. What, what, <laughs> what do you take not. away from, especially, you know, adoption when it's more of emerging, an emerging
1: artist? Right, right. Well, when I first wrote about Beck, for instance, um, he was going out on his tour after loser kind of uh that was his first hit the yeah. loser and it was kind of people thought of it as a novelty at that time sure. but it wasn't at all he was doing i mean it was it was for mainstream public you know on the radio but um he was very experimental and doing really super interesting stuff he was about but that kind of it was kind of a surprise hit you know yeah. loser was and so um I went over to his house before he was to set out on tour, um, for that. And he lived in this, you know, just this kind of nasty house in Highland park, you know, and just t-shirts and shit everywhere. And, uh, I don't know if I can curse on yeah, this. You, you can, can. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and he had to do his laundry because he was getting ready to go out on tour. So he said, you know, I, I want to talk to you, man, but I'm in a hurricane. You go to the laundromat with me. So the, the, my first interview with Beck was like um, leaving his ratty house and going to this scary laundry mat and helping Beck do his laundry. That's and awesome. he had all these really cool like vintage 70s T-shirts. I remember that. But so that was Beck. And then, yeah, most, most of the people I talked to back then, unless they were already mainstream Musicians like Lou Reed, you know, Lou Reed's not mainstream, but you know, unless they were established, you know, long career musicians, they lived in, you know, just the same kind of crappy place I lived in. Right.
0: So. Yeah. I kind of get that. I read the Meat Puppets uh, article you did. And sounded, yeah. You described it a little bit, but it sounded like, you know, it's pretty, you know.
1: And that was well into their career. And they'd already even. They'd, yeah.
0: Uh, they'd got the kind of. The pain push. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So yeah, I and mean, they just lived in this kind of suburban house in the middle of Phoenix. It was it was just a hellish neighborhood. And it was like the most boring neighborhood in the world and you're like, "Okay, this is why they make this interesting music." In it. Was it
0: like called like cookie cutter? Called a to- Oh, it was, yeah, stuff? yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Lou Reed. Now, he's notorious for being very uh, I guess unpleasant to the press. Oh yeah, yeah. Was that an oh, intimidating oh, thing my. even to approach?
1: Yeah, that was earlier. That was my first big like got an interview with a hero sort of like right. I mean I worshiped the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and um I knew Lou Reed was you know was was um notorious for that cuz uh, he there's uh, Lester Bangs had had this you know years of a uh, relationship of relationship with Lou Reed that was you know Cantankerous, or what is the word I'm looking for? I thought that's the word. Yeah. And um, so I was scared to death because that was one of my first big interviews for Option before I even became editor. And so I just did all this research. And again, back then, you couldn't just Google it. You know, you had to go to the library and like check out old copies. Microfiche? Microfiche and shit like that. So, and I did that. You know, I just over. Research stories and and I was ready, you know. I was ready for Lou Reed. I was ready for combat. You know, I got in there and he was like, he gave me this like, you know, this weak, s- slick fish handshake. I'm like, that's not a rock and roll animal handshake. And then um, he was known as the rock and roll animal. And um, he was a short little guy, and um, he he was um, fine. I mean, he was kind of mellow. The one thing is um, he. He didn't want to talk about what I wanted to talk about. So he – when he would – when I would want to talk about Andy Warhol because he had just done this project with uh, John Cale who he co-founded the Velvet Underground with and they hadn't been back together in years. Um, And they did this project because Andy Warhol had just died and Andy Warhol had introduced the Velvet Underground first. And um, it was a wonderful album and it's called Songs for Drella. And I wanted to talk about his relationship with Andy Warhol, the Exploding Plastic Inevitable, all these, these this whole 60s happening in New York, Velvet Underground, right. John Cale, Nico, all that stuff. And um, he didn't want to talk about Andy Warhol. He said, yeah, I just listen to the record. And I said, uh, and so when he didn't want to talk about the record, he would default to talking about gear. Okay. And there's nothing more boring <laughs> than talking about gear. You know, yeah. but I mean, you you can do it in a way that's interesting, but not for like half an hour straight sure. talking about placement of microphones. I went, oh, this is a disaster, well, yeah, especially for option. Right? Yeah, this is a disaster, and um, so. But I kept steering him back on course. And at one point I said, you know, it was easy to talk to, and I knew this would get a rise. From. I said, it was easy to talk to John Gale. He really talked to me about you know, Andy Warhol, the Velvet Underground, and all that stuff. He goes, well, you can just say that, you know, John Gale was a nice guy, Lou was the prick. And I went, okay, <laughs> there's my quote. You know, I can go from that. I can do something like this. It was great. Like, but it was sell scary. that on a T-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Um, that brings up an interesting point that, that I wanted to uh, ask you about. Is that uh, uh, controlling the narrative? I yeah. mean, this is probably more so at Rolling Stone where there's a, probably a bigger publicist's you know, watch oh, okay. over. But how do, you, how do you cut through the crap?
1: Well, it was, it was not as much of a problem at Option because most of the artists that we dealt with were not – at that level yet but some of them were like Lou Reed and Morrissey Um, Michael Stipe even to a certain degree but I knew him already so it was easy to do that um but it's very hard at Rolling Stone it was extremely hard because they really wanted to kind of be there in MTV it was even harder you know and also there was a complicity you know MTV was complicit with these right. artists you know and i wasn't used to that so i had and but rolling stone much less so because you know rolling stone was did have credibility in that sense whether some listeners understand that or not it had great journalistic credibility yeah um so but it's it became increasingly hard and in throughout the 90s you know because the publicists had a stronghold and artists were you know the publicists were learning how to not let the the, the stuff they didn't want out there out there and and how to get the stuff they wanted in there and you just had to kind of i had to negotiate a whole lot with uh some of them people that you know we were working with at rolling stone for instance jacob dylan when we put him on the cover of rolling right. stone um i wanted to i mean it was a it was a no-brainer that jacob dylan would talk about his father bob right i mean <laughs> you have to you have to he's <laughs> jacob dylan breaking big yeah. right and um they were saying what well, jacob didn't want to talk about you know his dad and i went. Well, uh, we just can't do this unless he talks about, you know, this is rolling. I, and I would have to say to the publicist, this is Rolling Stone. I mean, right. we, this magazine is known for, you know, Bob Dylan covers and covering Bob Dylan since he was Port, you know, really usually yeah. important in the 60s. And um, there's no way that we can do a Rolling Stone cover story on Jacob Dylan without mentioning his dad, him mentioning, mentioning. and she said, well, you can mention it. I said, no, him mentioning his dad. So we went around and around and around and I got finally at the point, I said, you know, we, we do this this way or we don't do it at all. And I got the writer to do it, who was Jerry Hershey. She's a wonderful writer. And she, I think she had a relationship with Bob Dylan and, and, had been and had written for years, and Jacob liked her stuff, and we finally agreed and he still didn 't talk much about Bob, but she got enough where you got a sense of what it was like to be bob dylan 's son when you were a kid and that 's all that 's all we needed, but they didn 't want to do that at first, and that was that 's just kind of one example of the kind of painstaking negotiation you have to go through. To get just simple access that was easy in the '70s and '60s, because you got to go on planes with them and stuff yeah. like that. And so that's interesting. Yeah.
0: Um, I guess yeah, let's move on to Rolling Stone. So you were mm-hmm. uh, you were actually at Option for about five years.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was I was there from '91 to '96.
0: Okay, actually, one thing I want to touch on: just I think one of the probably five uh, profound news story back then was uh Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain. Yeah, yeah you were at option what, what kind of day was that or oh was
1: that uh, it was a horrible day I, I knew Kurt um and I um you know a lot of us you know because Kurt was always in LA because they were based in Seattle and uh you know he was a really gentle kid you know yeah. with uh, the weight of the world on his shoulders he's he suffered from depression and he you know heroin addict um and he was brilliant, just brilliant and um he um everybody we all saw it coming because um he had uh, attempted suicide in Rome, right. but he also just talked about it a lot I mean he was on <laughs> being on you know um always talked about it. I mean you could listen to his music and um so you know so like the friend that you have that suffers depression you're always worried you know it's, are they going to do something and so you know in the music industry really is a small town we all kind of know each other and so it's it's kind of hard to keep those boundaries with with some people you just get to know them and you you know you, you kind of care about them right. um, so we had done this story on um uh, early on before never mind the the um the um advance cassette had come out and i had listened to it and i went oh my god this could be a breakthrough you know it's got some songs that actually i could see kind of playing on the radio not much because it's still a little well, left yeah. of center because at that time it was like guns and roses so it was very raunchy compared to guns and roses not raunchy in the sex way but you right. know grungy and i hate to use the word now we used it to describe <laughs> the music back then like mud honey grungy yeah. but then it became a term <laughs> but um that's what it was and um so i you know my we had this writer gina arnold who just really had her finger on the pulse of stuff like that and she said why don't you know i'll do the story why don't we put it on the cover and i went i totally see that you know talked to scott it took a lot of convincing he said nirvana because they just had this one album or something bleach was out you know and I said, yeah. And he kind of thought that they were a little too metalish for us, which is crazy, you know. When you think about it, he, I mean, like Sonic Youth was okay, but like uh, Nirvana's a little too metal. We need more punk, you know. And they called themselves punk, but it wasn't like punk, like Buzzcocks, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, but I loved them because I mean, I really I liked Guns N' Roses, so I didn't have a problem with the combination of Guns and Roses and Sonic Youth at all. Mm-hmm. But you know, there was no Guns and Roses to Nirvana, but. But I didn't have this feeling that this could be a breakthrough record, you know, and I said, I, th- I think we should put them on the cover. So we did. And wow, because we were bi-monthly, we came out every two months. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when the, we put the story to bed, Nirvana was playing little clubs. And we went down to Mexico to see them in this little strip mall club. And in L.A. they were played like the Roxy in L.A., which is, you know, something like Tremont Music Hall right. in Charlotte, North Carolina or something like that, a little club. And so we did the story and we were waiting for, you know, it took two months for the thing to come up. By the time it came out, Nirvana had gone from clubs to arenas. And Nirvana had gone, gone from just kind of barely getting into the Billboard album chart to, be, to beating out Michael Jackson and Garth Brooks. At that time, that was huge. Yeah. And we were just like, holy shit. How did that happen? It was like a game changer. And it literally changed yeah. rock radio for, for good. So – and then it got – things got – the next few years, things got really tough. Kurt Cobain did not expect to become a. I mean, yeah. he, they wanted he, to. I a mean, voice of a generation. Yeah, something he didn't yeah. apply for. He did not apply for it, did not think he was that at all. He thought he was a fraud. And all – I remember, you know, even court. And then. Courtney, you know, which uh, she was a brilliant woman but crazy – well, I shouldn't – I'm not – I can't diagnose Courtney. But uh, difficult, (laughs) shall we say. Well, put those two things together. She's a brilliant woman that people
0: probably don't give her enough credit for because she does so many things on the other side of the coin that people shake their head at. She
1: is absolutely brilliant. Uh, She's one of the – she's one of these people who if you hang around and talk to her, she will talk rings around. I mean you'll be like – how does she know so much? How is she so observant? I mean, she is really smart, but she's also troubled yeah. to say the least. And together, they were just oil and water because he was this quiet, demure, sort of you know yeah. shy and uh, uncomfortable guy with low self esteem, and Courtney was just this you know bulldozer. and it it became i remember the night they got together we were there it was that that little club in mexico oh my gosh and um she
0: uh (laughs) were you like this will never last
1: oh yes (laughs) yeah as a matter of fact um we were in my car uh no my scott's car um and we were looking for kurt because we needed to do this photo shoot we could nobody could find kurt and they were on a bill it was nirvana hull and i can't think maybe Soundgarden garden or one of those other seattle bands and um we couldn't find kurt when I mean, we had chris and we had dave and we were like where's kurt where's kurt and somebody said i i, I heard that he went upstairs with courtney love <laughs> yeah. and i remember going, oh that can't be good that was the first night and i remember going oh that can't be good and tour words weren't spoken spoken but we you know we finally came and finally found him and did the photo shoot and it was really a terrible photo shoot because they were <laughs> difficult to you know to work with but um in terms of like looking good, <laughs> they just kind of sat there and went eh. um but yeah, i mean the next few years were just crazy yeah. and 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 then that fame and then dealing with that kind of fame you know he he didn't sign up for that uh, and he took everything personally. There was a, a song where he says uh, something about Cena Gun or something. Oh, no, no, no. Rape Me. Rape Me. Right. The right. song Rape Me. Um, so reports came out that some guy was singing Rape Me while he raped a woman or something. And right. Kurt took it personally. Like he caused it. Right. And um, it's like, dude, you know, that's not your fault. I mean it's, the song is the exact opposite of that and um so it was tough and i remember the day uh, he w- went into rehab and uh in la and um then he jumped the fence and went missing and my friend neil strauss who wrote for the new york times was calling me and and, and i said well you know what have you heard because he was on the beat you know he said well, we hadn't heard anything yet but you know it's not good he had just attempted suicide in in rome and um so neil um just kept calling me with updates and and the last call was they found a body in their house in yeah, wow. Seattle it was it was really it was i actually went outside and got sick it was just cuz i knew it was him yeah it was a terrible day
0: yeah that was a crazy day yeah um, you touched upon something about hearing the advance copy of uh, Number mind, mind. Mm-hmm. that that's must have ha- that must have happened quite a bit in your industry like how does that happen a lot where i guess specifically i want to ask like where you just you pop something in and it's like holy shit this is well no that's rare it's
1: super duper rare i mean i I was just talking to a friend of mine last night we were talking about that um you know 80 to 90 percent of the music that we got there sucked <laughs> I mean, to be honest, sure It sucked and and um or it's just it's just playing on it's, well, it's in the lane it's supposed to
0: be in yeah,
1: yeah, which sucks, yeah. <laughs> but i mean, yeah, I don't mean it as badly yeah. you know some of that some of that too, but um but and then there's like you know fifteen ten fifteen percent that's that's you know good stuff, really really good stuff, and then there's maybe five percent that's really 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 special and that's a lot of what you hear out mm-hmm. there and there may be two percent that's absolutely brilliant you know so that's how rare it is you yeah know? and and Nevermind was one of those and i went oh my god this is absolutely brilliant dr Dre's first album was one of those I went, oh my god this is absolutely brilliant but those are rare yeah it's
0: interesting someday i want to get in uh somebody in the marketing team because I, I i imagine this again is probably you know illusions of how it not how it's not but that time where you get the team in a conference room and mm-hmm. you play that, you know, here's you know, here's what we have to push and oh, and playing yeah. to somebody and them saying, "Holy shit, this thing's going to sell itself." You know, uh-huh. everyone's got to be psyched.
1: Well, they didn't, and and Nevermind is one of those albums that they were not prepared for. They they hoped. To sell twenty thousand copies of that. Because yeah. that's what alternative, whatever that means, um, was doing at that time. Like Hoose was signed to uh Who's was a like a kind of a post hardcore band from out of Minneapolis that was really great. They were on SST Records and they got signed by Warner, they released Candy Apple Red, um and you know it sold twenty thousand copies, and that was good. That was really good for a band like Who's could Do at that time right that was considered a success same with Sonic Youth and stuff like that they had the, they were the kind of the vanity uh major label vanity projects it was um, wanted to put this music out there, but didn't put a lot of resources into it. They would put in just enough to to kind of target yeah. you know their marketing and so they did that with nirvana and um you know kurt cobain's you know, whole dream was just to get in walmart so some kid in in aberdeen washington whose mom takes him to the walmart could see a nirvana record that's that's as mainstream as he wanted yeah. to get and and um you know which they w- wouldn't have happened on you know on uh what sub pop you know yeah. so um he that's all he, he really wanted and so they you know i think they pressed about 20 25,000 copies or something i mean more than that but 50,000 maybe a very small amount yeah you know relatively speaking and it just sold like hotcakes and so they were not prepared they had to go back and 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 order more you know thousands more copies and um it, it, they didn't have to market nirvana you know, they just kind of sold themselves. And that's super rare. Yeah. They spend a lot of money trying to sell you the exact image of whatever band they're out there selling, yeah. you know.
0: Well, unfortunately, I guess everything that came behind them. Oh, God. Know, then yes. it's like, all right, oh. we're going to call it grunge. So yes. We're package it like this. And and we're going to get here the go, lead
1: singer of Bush to get this haircut <laughs> and stop singing that dance music. <laughs> and. And yeah, and and it's just so to me, you know, and to, to any of those of us who are in the industry and we're hearing a lot of this stuff, it's just so flagrantly obvious, and, <laughs> and it just sucks. You know, that's why I say like the eighty percent. You know, yeah, like a band, and I know a lot of people loved him, but Bush sucked. I mean, they were just a carbon <laughs> copy of what Nirvana was. doing. I think
0: he might have been on one of your covers. Uh, in your
1: t- I'm there. sure because <laughs> at Rolling Stone, you know, I mean, they were. They were mainstream, not one of my covers. <laughs> um, I also want to touch upon
0: uh, reviews. I know you've done a ton of re- album reviews, yeah, you know, yeah. throughout your entire career. How do you how do you go about how do you approach that? Like how do you contextualize something that you're hearing for the first time, and you know, maybe it's you're not even a fan of that genre, this and that.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, usually uh, in the early days, I worked in genres that I that, that I, I that, that I knew about, okay. and um and also at option you know i i I, when i first started out i mean i really thought that cream was a great magazine and, and i liked that kind of snarky sort of like you know just go for the jugular if it's bad and just um but you know i mean i would listen to the record a whole lot i would just live with that record you know before and um i would find some special some special moment in the record you know say say i'm going to give it a good review mm-hmm. some special moment in the record where you know that's what i would lead off with this is this this special moment in the record and then i'd pull the lens back and kind of write about you know this is you know the, on their third album yeah. all that context stuff and then yeah. i would go through and i just um you know there. it's hard to write about music you're you're trying to write about the sound of something you know there's yeah. that famous quote uh that nobody knows who said it some people say elvis costello some people say uh, frank zappa but uh writing about music is like dancing about architecture (laughs) it's just really hard to do it's hard to get across that sound and and these days it's really not as important i mean you can put little brush strokes of sound uh description in in music writing but you can also just embed a video or embed an audio and so you don't really need to write those descriptions now there's other things to write about so i don't do nearly as much criticism as i did before because people can decide for themselves now they don't need mark kemp or lorraine ollie or you know lester bangs or whoever to to tell them what's good and what's not good I mean, we can do other things we can put it into social context we can uh, well we, uh, i 'll say that in your
0: to defend you that I think you do need it is I think what the internet has done is is and for better for worse, we lack gatekeepers now
1: well where, we do yes where
0: now there's too much out there like yeah. i find, I find reviews very helpful because I just catch the key phrases that I like you know the genre, the you know if it's melodic you know if I hear that and see those words i'll be like i got to check it out right you know? right but like my issue now is like there's so much out there, yeah. like, how do you how
1: do you find what you want and i i mean i um i sympathize with that and and that's definitely what we that was a a role we served and we served it well back then i think um and pitchfork does a relatively good idea today but it's funny because i i always had that too much sort of thing because we were the ones who were shepherding it to you right and um and so it was always like that for me it's like god there's so much out here what do i do we're we're the ones who were deciding and putting it out there so um now people now just you have to do that too and others have to do it too and you can because you can hear the music um whereas before you couldn't i mean you yeah you you had to commit yeah you had to commit (laughs) so it, it played a real function and i think it still does too i mean to go back to your point i think there's not enough of it but uh it is out there i mean there is good criticism out there and there is good music out there but you have to look for the criticism too right it's almost as hard to find good critics today as it is to find good music because there's just so much of it out there you have to kind of we need a critic you need a we need a met well you got metacritic (laughs) Metacritic. (laughs) metacritic.com but you need a. uh back in the you 70, need a gatekeeper for, yes, critics. for critics right <laughs> back in the 70s i knew if there were certain critics liked it then i probably wouldn't like it if the other critics That's liked funny. it then i probably would like it because i knew how i knew what dave marsh was going to say about something i knew i knew his you know what he liked i knew what you know lester banks liked i knew you know what these other critics liked um so i i would read them to either argue with them <laughs> Internally, or to say, yeah, yeah, you know, they're right. So,
0: well, you took a career where you probably had the chance to uh, face off with them. (laughs) I did, I did, ended uh, up on panels with them. All right, as you were warned in the intro, this is a two part interview. So, we're gonna have to pause here and pick up next week and hear more about Mark's tenure at Rolling Stone his experience at MTV, and his inspiration for his book, Dixie Lullaby. So please tune in. There's plenty more good stuff coming up. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. I can be reached at dill at rockonomicspodcast.com. If you like what you hear so far, please tell your friends about us. They can find us at the usual outlets, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. That's it for now. Until next week. Good night, Cleveland.